Hey, Kara. How are you doing this fine afternoon? If you could hear this. That's the sound of me banging my head on the wall. That's how and I'm doing. You literally, you now have a post-it on your head. so it's wednesday it's my long day and i'm a little bit spent and that's all i'm good just a little tired well you just made my day that was just just the most wonderful thing i've seen in a very long time with some tiramisu rooibos tea with the potential for fall-like weather coming in tomorrow so i'm quite excited Oh, that's cool. We don't get the fall here. We go straight from hot summer to like mild winter and then mild winter back to hot summer. So speaking of places that don't really have seasonality the way us Midwesterners experience seasonality, we're going to be talking about a place that also is hot for most of the year, aren't we? Yeah, we're going to be talking with a person who works in Samoa and Samoa doesn't have much in the way of uh, seasons. It's tropical. Supposedly has a rainy season and a dry season, but I was there this summer during the dry season and it rained the whole time, so <laughs> that's a big fat lie. And so we're talking to Dr. Jessica Harden. So I met Jessica actually in Samoa two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. She is a cultural and medical anthropologist who studies uh, Samoan Pentecostals mm-hmm. um, and health. So how faith and some of the cardiometabolic disorders that Samoans are contending with regularly listed among the top 10 most obese nations. When we were there, we were there for a mini conference that Nikki Holly put together, who will also be talking to shortly for another podcast. And it was a, basically a conference of anthropologists who were studying health in the Pacific and it led to a Pacific Health special issue of Annals of Human Biology. So Jessica and I and Michaela Howells, we all are authors or co-authors with each other on a variety of pieces in that particular issue. And Jessica has just recently released a book called Faith and the Pursuit of Health, Cardiometabolic Disorders in Samoa that summarizes and goes into detail about the the long-term research she's done there and among Pacific peoples. And one of the things that was super interesting to me about this is my original dissertation work was with Pentecostals. And so one of the things that super excited me was the number of Pentecostal churches in Samoa, the possibility to do all sorts of different work that I've done there and to work with people like her who have already laid the groundwork and set up the field site. So so since you studied Pentecostals, but that was also in New York. Mm. Um, and in Costa were you, Rica. Were you ever able to attend services in Samoa, Pentecostal services in Samoa? I have not been to Pentecostal services. No, I have been to church, but I have not had um, the wherewithal to get up on Sunday morning and, and go to church. I'll be perfectly honest, Pentecostals, put in some serious time in church. And since I've been putting in serious time doing other types of data collection come Sunday, mm-hmm. I'm usually down for the count. But Samoans are impressive in the number of hours they put into going to church and everything else. So I was really fascinated by the work that goes into religion and God and how that's, you know, I mean, it's a major, major part of their life. So shall we bring her on? Yeah. Hello. Hi. 
So we always like to know how the sausage of the anthropologist is made, hence the title. So we start mm -hmm. off with everyone's origin story. So if you wouldn't mind, I would love to hear the timeline of you, how you got into anthropology, why you wanted to be a professor. And if you don't mind, I, since you've just switched uh, positions and moved across the country, a little bit about that, maybe? Sure. There's always like so many ways to tell the origin story, but I'll tell you the one that I tell my students, um, which is that as an undergraduate, I studied history and was just enamored with my professors who could tell stories about medieval life, like talk story, like, um, like narratives, as if you knew the people. And from there, I was thinking about graduate school and realizing that perhaps I wanted to actually talk to people and not just reimagine their stories. And so that's where my interest in anthropology developed. And after I graduated, I moved overseas to New Zealand to work in the wine industry. Mm. Hmm. Hold on, hold on. I know. How did that come about? <laughs> How did that come about? Kind of surreptitiously. I had went on semester at sea as an undergraduate and we went to New Zealand kind of by accident. We were supposed to go to Southeast. We were supposed to go to Asia, but then it was the summer of SARS. And so we ended up in New Zealand in the South Pacific. And I almost didn't go because I thought, I don't want to go to that part of the world, right? And then I ended up dedicating my life to this part of the world. And so wine was a way to work as a seasonal worker. And so I did some wine training and then eventually trained to be a sommelier. But during this trip, I traveled through the islands as a sojourner and um, was really struck by the distinctions between Samoa and American Samoa coming out of a history degree and that was very kind of critically oriented towards post-colonial theory, I was just like alive with trying to understand this landscape and the kind of stark differences. And years later, I'd have a conversation with someone who, who was living in Samoa, had done a study abroad there, came back for research, who grew up on a, on a reservation in the U.S. and said she always felt that American Samoa felt like the res. And so to me, that perhaps spoke to what I was really struck with in terms of the landscape and then started developing my questions from there, really about thinking about structural violence and diabetes and obesity, which, you know, seems rather obvious now, but at the time wasn't really a conversation that was being brought together. So oddly, yeah. you have to thank SARS yeah. for yeah. your research and career trajectory. <laughs> I, know. I tell that story to students now and they, um, they don't even know what SARS is. Mm. Um, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, so then, I guess, how did that, so you were looking at uh, structural violence and obesity and other health issues. How did that become focusing on the intersection between faith and health, especially among Pentecostals? Yeah, so I, you know, had no intention entering graduate school to study Christianity or religion. My first, you know, summer field work as Good ethnographers do. I went and did language training and I uh, was at the University of Hawaii Manoa and there I wanted to be in an immersive language environment. The only place where I could find an immersive language environment was the church and so I found some churches that were Samoan speaking congregations and took the bus and showed up and was like rightly kind of welcomed and started my first field work on the island of Oahu in a Samoan community. And it was there that I started interviewing people about basically diabetes knowledge, you know, asking the basic question of why do you think someone people have such high rates of obesity and diabetes? And the answers would be really short and flat. Interviews would last 15 or 20 minutes. And I'd get the answer that, you know, 
perhaps anyone walking the globe today might say, which is I have to eat less and exercise more. Mm. So this like drumbeat of health promotion was really evident. And I was really, I was bored and I felt like I couldn't get access. To, I couldn't figure out what was actually going on. And so I stopped asking the question and I start just hanging out at church. And that's where I started hearing about health in ways that I couldn't have accessed if I asked health questions because of the ways in which health is so kind of morally, politically, socially loaded and racialized in the U.S. And so that's where the think outside the burger happens. You know, like I'm listening to a sermon in Samoan and really focused on language learning. And then there was kind of code switching into English and to think outside the burger, which was a kind of a request for people to think about their spiritual lives in new ways and to kind of get outside of their patterns and their habits. And that's what this kind of burger was the stand-in for. And so it was really following the lead of the people that I was spending time with to find the meaningful frameworks through which they understood rapid rise in disease um, and their experience of weight, food, and doctors and nurses. So this was not a question we put on, but it, we have a lot of listeners, graduate student listeners, and maybe a lot who have not gotten into the field yet or gone into the field yet. And so I'm wondering if maybe you could do two things. One, say whether you ever felt like this was going to fail and you wanted to give up. And then two, kind of what kept you going? Uh, and maybe that realization of how you needed to, like you said, shift your framework on how to ask these questions and let the people drive. If you could talk a little bit about that as kind of like an advice bit for our listeners. Yeah, thanks. It felt elusive, you know, looking for health when I wasn't talking about health. And I knew that like it had to do with my own understanding of these categories of what I was looking for. And I needed to loosen up on those categories to get at meaningful experiences on the ground. But as you do that, you enter into spaces that feel tangential, but then they end up being central. Um, so it, it really is the luxury of, you know, the standard PhD in the U.S. where you have a year for field work is that you get to do inductive question asking and follow leads that seem unrelated, and sometimes they are, but that inevitably give us a broader understanding of human complexity. And I was certainly afraid that I was going to end up doing all this church study and then not end up with anything about health or the body. But then it just kept happening, which keeps you going. Um, mm -hmm. And you keep following these leads and you develop really meaningful relationships that become kind of the driver in many ways of the research. And you follow the people who are kind, generous, and often, you know, the incisive expert on what's going on in the ground. I mentioned this in our intro. One of the reasons that I was so excited when I first met you, Jessica, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today is both because I've worked in Pentecostal churches and I've worked in the Samoan Islands. And I can relate to you from both perspectives, from working with Pentecostals. When I ask health-related questions, I also got answers that were almost as though they had learned from the public health messaging what their answers should be and it was a different topic but it was it was a similar type of experience where when something outside of the frame the a priori assumptions happened that caused me research issues i realized that that was the avenue i needed to investigate and pursue instead of just gloss over as an aberration and then also 
you know, when I was working in American Samoa, in 2016, during the Zika outbreak, there was a tremendous amount of public health messaging. And the answers to the questions that we had in a a lot of times were almost directly off of a CDC pamphlet. And one of the things that I noticed there is how many of the public health workers would just pop in and out. And so conversations with them did tend to be superficial. Samoans would not open up unless they saw that you were going to stay there and invest and really give a give a crap, mm-hmm. and and vice versa. Like if you're long, there long enough for them to learn your name and for them to care about you, also, you know, it's a very humanizing and humbling experience. So I want to sort of touch on that from the Samoan perspective, using a quote from the first chapter of your book, mm-hmm. which we mentioned, but I'll mention again. It's brand new, right? Faith and the Pursuit of Health, Cardiometabolic Disorders in Samoa. And in that first chapter, you say, quote, some Samoans see recent work by medical and biocultural anthropologists on high levels of obesity as exoticizing Samoan culture to the outside world, unquote. And I have been harangued by people as though that's what we were there doing. So I know this attitude is not isolated. And I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit for our listeners about the pros and cons of the public health efforts there and what they're actually dealing with. Thanks. I, I've been thinking about this question a lot and not just in terms of public health, but in terms of like the anthropological machine. And I think Samoa is a particular case in terms of, if we just think about the history of anthropology is rooted in Samoa. We have, right, obviously Margaret Mead and you know, when I did field work in American Samoa, there was hyper awareness about me identifying as an anthropologist and uh, kind of yoking of Margaret Mead's identity onto me. You know, a young white woman from the Northeast coming to do this work resonates. And so I think that that history is alive and present. I think that Samoa is a an extraordinarily globalized place where more Samoans live in the diaspora than live in Samoa. and um, And as such, this kind of hyper-awareness about fatness is there, right? And, and, and there's ways that we can talk about that, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention it in a second. But, you know, this hyper-awareness of who is on these top 10 fat, fattest countries in the world lists, and Samoa and many other Pacific nations are often at the top of these, right? And these kind of top 10 lists are about, like, oogling on the internet, mm. right? About fatness and obesity, and, and the like, why is it happening from an outsider perspective? And I think that there's you know, deep awareness of that. And part of that is rooted in the fact that so much of the research and the data that we know about the epidemiological transition and the nutrition transition is based in these places. Um, and so I think there's awareness that researchers have developed these theories and, and extraordinary careers based on the measurements of other people's bodies, right? And so I think that that is, a kind of a, a critical engagement that, that many are having in Samoa. And the newspaper is like alive and critical and engaged with researcher research and reporting on whatever is the new cutting edge biocultural uh, epidemiological public health research. So this is like a highly engaged set of communities that are kind of critical and protective given their place in the history of social science research. I want to mention, and you've had Alex Brewis on the show, but Alex Brewis and Amber Woodish's study about cross-cultural stigma is so important. It contextualizes some of this because you have a a place that is 
also lives in the historical record of research in terms of fat positivity, or at least like ideas about largeness tied to other kind of positive cultural ideas, but then also um, kind of registering high on this survey of, of stigma. So that suggests that there's, you know, there's something going on there about, it was obviously stigma, but I would say like a hyper-awareness about uh, racialized fat bodies, particularly as someone's move in and out of the diaspora in New Zealand, Australia, and the US, right, where these things are extra heightened. And then also, I think part of the suspicion comes from the institutional inequalities that exist between American or New Zealand and Australian universities and the University in Samoa, right? There's the Center for Samoan Studies, recently reinvigorated by uh, Melissa Leasiolangi, Malama Melissa, Penelope Skolfo, now under leadership of um, Safua Akeli Amama. And their, some of their faculty, again, like Masami, Suzuti Levy, Ramona Budu Singh, are writing about the critical inequalities between Global North scholars who go to the Global South and kind of use indigenous and local scholars for their networks and relationships, but don't necessarily invest in reciprocal relationships with the institution or their students or you know, publication efforts. And certainly that is, speaks to like anthropological limits in, in training. And my book doesn't do anything for that, but my new projects are attempting to work towards kind of more reciprocal balanced relationships in terms of not only resources, but knowledge production. Mm -hmm. It was like a very long answer because it, it really has been on my mind lately and trying to reflect on, again, this kind of history of research, kind of critical perspectives on the ground, and then these institutional inequalities all coming together. It's, it's good that it's long because it's a, it's a big story. It's, yeah. not, it's not superficial. One of the, you know, the reason that, that I've been there recently is to study tattooing. And one of the reasons that I have continue to go back is because it's something that someone celebrate and I get a lot of positive feedback from someone's about, okay, good. There's a Polangi studying something that shows us in a positive light, but I've also recently had people coming onto our social media page to say, Hey, I see you're writing in Samoa. Where are the Samoan and Pacific scientists in your project? You know, why don't you Polangi stay in your lane and study yourselves instead of us? And that's valid. And I'm struggling with that also. I think part of it in my new work is really working to engage partnerships and collaborations, right? And, and it requires some rethinking about our own American institutional limits, right? And the ways in which we're rewarded for certain kinds of research and not. And then also kind of rethinking the ethics of what it means to write about other people. So in your writing, you're writing about how food and fat mediate the body in spiritual ways. And I like the expression uh, that faith believes before seeing. And these were in different parts of your book, but they seem to be related. And so I was just wondering if you could sort of either put that put that together or correct me and, and, and tell us a little bit about that interaction. Yeah, so... The faith believes before seeing is like a central Pentecostal idiom of, of faith practice. And, and so it's interesting to put it together with this question of mediation, though. So the thing that I'm, I'm working on here when talking about food and fat mediating the body is to say that food and fat are not singular. Right? They don't just exist in one form, but they change forms um, as 
people eat, people grow food and share food, right? And so thinking about the ways in which when these things change, their meaning changes, and they also change the bodies that they are consumed by, right? So this is like humans create meaning around body shape and size, and that meaning is not singular either, right? It has to do with the context through which bodies change. And so I think what we scholars have done a really kind of wonderful job at painting a picture of this diverse ways in which body size has different moral meaning, but we've done a little less thinking about change, right? And the dynamism um, in a lifetime, or even in kind of an imagined generation, the ways in which you could imagine your grandfather being the same size as your father, but your grandfather was healthy and your father is not, right? So it raises these questions about when the kind of basic life building materials like food and fat change, how does that change what the body means. So the body that that was large was dignified and generous, right, in the past. It was the body of your, of a leader, um, uh, the person who cared for a whole community. And now the body that is large can mean lots of different things, right? It can mean stress and, and lacking access to, you know, good food. It can also mean greed or luxury and expensive food, right? So it doesn't mean one thing. And so what Pentecostals are really good at is engaging in kind of critical readings of situations and people. And here I'm thinking about Courtney Hanman's work about critical Christianity and that she shows that Christians are so good at critical evaluation or critique because they're they're searching by, by virtue of kind of the theology for that which stands in the way of direct connection with God. So you kind of put these situations together and you have a Pentecostal perspective or like a, 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 an analytic for understanding what would make fat good and what would make fat bad, right? Which requires really an analysis of social context, right? Like who's sharing what, who has what money, what are those relationships like? What are those foods like in everyday life? You know, what kind of plantation does someone keep, right? All of those things influence how people interpret whether fat can be healthy or whether fat is sickness. It's not directly evident the way it might be in other places. And so how do you see that actually play out then in social interactions, almost the different definitions or meanings to body shape, body size, and food? Uh, what do you actually see on the ground? So I think the way that I try to tackle it in the book is through about uh, evaluations or chatting and jokes about pastors, because it was just like, it's a genre, it's a thing that people talk about. It's also a kind of a default in terms of if you ask, I did some interviews recently where I asked people like, what do you think when you see somebody who's really fat, um, maybe walking around in town, what do you think you know about them? And the answers revolved around a, a couple of things. One was like, oh, I'd feel bad for them. Or two, I would assume that they were a pastor or a politician or something, right? And so when you press people more, then they'll start giving you more of the identifying features of these categories of people. So it, it really has to do with kind of reading power and access to all kinds of resources. So, you know, making assumptions about who people are based on their body size is how you see kind of this thing operating on the ground and, and therefore how it, it maps onto role. So like children who are overweight, the parents are considered responsible and found in these recent interviews and the children kind of should be pitied. You should feel bad for them, right? But then kind of the example that 
always gets brought up is the prime minister being very, very large um, and how that was an example of unhealthy setting a bad example for the population. Mm -hmm. So it was often kind of directly related to role and reflection and how that intersects with other kinds of, if it was an interpersonal relationship, what their personality was like, right? Like, were they happy? Were they showing up to things or were they withdrawn, right? These kind of things could mean different ideas about healthiness. So someone could be large, but you know, going to Zumba class every day and therefore considered healthy, but the same body size person who was withdrawn would be considered unhealthy, right? So it's a kind of a cross section of factors that people are using to understand whether someone is well or not. So I have a question that might be a little inside baseball, but I think from the pictures in your book, maybe it's not. So my impression in American Samoa and Samoa is that fa'alave lave are both traditional and also in the diaspora a burden on folks because of not just the food involved, but the financial contributions that are required as well as, and you mentioned this, the obligations to the Fafatai and the church, the pastor, because of the important role that they play. And I see that dynamic of investing because it's a source of personal and community pride and also the stress and burden playing out in your book somewhat. So I wonder if that's an accurate reflection of what's happening and and if that's what people talked about with you. Yeah, so I think Ilana Gershon has a really great essay about learning how to ask or when not to ask for resources for Fa'lave Lave, right? These like large-scale celebrations of life and death, right? Organized around funerals, weddings, but other major life events. And I think that they get to stand in, right, for broader critiques about inequality. Um, And so what the kind of critical attention, and this comes up in the newspaper again all the time, is the focus on unequal giving, right? So you have a kind of imagined past where Fatlavilave and other forms of reciprocity worked really well. Even if they were unequal, you know, in terms of who gave and who received, there is this imagined idea that, that there was care that was distributed. And so now, the monetization of exchange has like led to kind of hyper forms of inflation, although it is a way for the diaspora to participate. So, you know, before cash, it was food and oratory that were exchanged and, and fine mats. And now cash kind of changes the whole scene as well as do globalized industrialized foods. So what I think is happening is that, you know, anxieties around increasing economic marginalization, right? This like ever increasing need for cash to pay for one's power bills, for pay for school fees, to pay for school uniforms, to pay for dialysis, that these ever you know, increasing need for cash is not met with ever increasing opportunity. And so the way that critique gets articulated is it gets focused on these like these events that are valued and considered now a centerpiece of Samoan culture. And so all of that kind of concern about inequality gets wrapped into church giving critiques and and also falabilave, which are more family-based. So I think that they still are providing this kind of incredible dense social network that is invaluable to people and their health, but it's hard to have enough cash all the time Mm. to do everything you have to do. And so this is one like shared way in which people can immediately click into that common idea that there's 
too much demand and not enough opportunity, right? That the things don't meet. But in your last response, this is kind of a way that we close out our interviews. Basically, what you were saying is Samoans trying to balance a number of different demands on their lives. And of course, academics have to do the exact same thing. And so a bit of the fun portion of these interviews is what do you do to maintain balance in your life? I read that question and I think I audibly laughed when you circulated the question. I was like, oh God, uh, what do I do? I just moved. This is like the, reflecting on the, the realities of academic life and being an anthropologist is like not only moving for jobs, but then also moving for the field and the ways in which that kind of punctuates one's life and also one's family life. And being a, a mother and a partner is basically what I do when I'm not here. And in fact, actually, since my child has become a child and no longer a baby, balance has actually come into my work life, which seems surprising. And part of it's because I just can't work on weekends. So I'm really liberated by that. And it makes me much more efficient when I do sit down to work. But I don't know, I've been like reading novels at night. What are you reading? We I'm love reading, these things. Right now, I'm reading There There by Tommy Orange. Hmm. It's a like, series of narratives about Native Americans living in Oakland, and it's deeply ethnographic and beautiful. Ooh. And so I'm, you know, nervous about that I don't have another book lined up. <laughs> um, but I did read those books, Elena Ferranti's novels, the series, My Brilliant Friend. Oh. They're like tomes of women's friendship in Italy and, nice. and beautiful. So yeah. we do have to wrap up, but how can people find out more about your work and reach you? if you want to be reached, if they have questions and want to know more. So I'm now at Rochester Institute of Technology. So, you know, a quick Google will find me and, and my email. On my website, jessica-harden.com, I have a link to uh, my publications so that they aren't, they're like released, they're not behind a paywall. Um, so you can find things there. Yeah, and I'm always happy to, to talk. Awesome, well, thank you so much for obliging our questions and giving us detailed and rich answers. I love it and our audience are a lot of grad students and folks who are considering going into academia or on their way so they help. Kara, can people find you on the interwebs? People can find me on the interwebs. Uh, Twitter at Kara Akabak and I have a website now, an actual professional website which is sites.nd.edu, Kara-Akabak. I have had a professional website for a long time, and I never tell anyone, but it's cdlin.people.ua.edu. But you can find me on Twitter, at Chris underscore L-Y. And we have been the Sausage of Science for the Human Biology Association. Thank you to Caroline Owens for her excellent editing of our terrible jibber-jabber. And please rate us despite our jibber-jabber, as awesome, five stars, and that you love us. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you.